The reading is uh, from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Thank you very much. Near the beginning of our passage this evening, we have that little word, therefore, and I'm going to start us off with the classic preacher's question, what is the therefore, therefore? It's an important question to ask in this passage because we are halfway through Colossians and lots of things have happened already in the book and it'd be a shame if we missed some of the big picture. So let's just cast our mind back to last week uh, when we were looking at the first bit of chapter three which answers to some extent that question of what's it there for. Verse 1 of this chapter said, If you have been raised with Christ, put your mind on things that are above. If you have been raised with Christ. It's not necessarily wrong to do the things in this passage uh, if you're not a Christian. In fact, it's quite right to put to death these things in the passage of not a Christian. But the emphasis here is if you are a Christian, if you have been raised with Christ, then there's a particular responsibility to put to death the things that are described in this passage. Verse 2 of chapter 3 was, instead set your mind on heavenly things, set your mind on the things above if you've been raised with Christ. And actually the second half of the book of Colossians could be termed heavenly mindedness, uh, an exercise in heavenly mindedness. Today, we're going to be looking at part A of heavenly-mindedness. Some people, of course, say that Christians are far too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly use. I'm sure you've heard that before. But I'd say the real problem in much of the church in the West is that we're far too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly use. And so the instruction in chapter 3 of Colossians, in the book of Colossians, to be setting our mind on the things that are above is especially important. Uh, Parts A and B of heavenly-mindedness in Colossians are a bit of a pair. We're looking at part A, as I say, which is the negatives, put to death these things. But it comes with part B, which we'll be looking at next week, which is the positives, much happier thing to preach, which I think Simon took for himself, uh, which is to be put on, put on various other things. But I've got put off, so I've got the negatives. Put to death is, of course, a very strong way of saying Uh, get rid of these things. This is a very strong way of phrasing the negative. It's not minimize what is earthly in you. It's not reduce what is earthly or constrain what is earthly, not hide away or cover up what is earthly, 
not immobilize what is earthly, but put to death what is earthly. Or you could say uh, mortify what is earthly. You might have heard of this little book, The Mortification of Sin, uh, by John Owen, very famous Puritan. Uh, That's about putting to death sin. And if you're up for a much more in-depth exploration than we have this evening of Colossians 3, then I recommend Owen to you. The mortification, the putting to death of sin. Most of us, hopefully, have never put anyone to death. I don't think we have any soldiers in the house or any executioners, certainly. Uh, And many of us have never put anything to death either. I'm personally very squeamish about even uh, putting mice and even flies to death. Uh, I get very uh, queasy about that. I can, however, stretch to putting to death weeds in the garden. So plucking up nettles, dragging up bindweed, spraying groundsel with a lethal spray, hacking away at brambles. I'm very happy with all of that. Uh, You could say in the garden I become a bit of a a horticultural Oppenheimer. I become death, the destroyer of weeds. And why is that okay? Why is it okay to destroy weeds? Well, it's because they're bad. They're not just annoying, they're bad. And the things likewise that Christians here in this passage are called to put to death are bad. It's okay to put these things to death because they are bad. Look at verse 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. When we read that word wrath, let's remember it, we're not thinking irrational, wild, temper tantrum from God. We're thinking just and settled righteous anger. Because of sin, the wrath of God is coming, and therefore it's a good thing to put it to death. That's not a human threat that in verse 6 it's being wielded, with Paul threatening the Colossians with coming to uh, bring wrath on them if they don't do what he tells them to. He's not implying a religious crusade against Colossae if they don't measure up. He's just giving them a responsible and loving warning that God's own agenda is to judge sin. The day of judgment will come when the thoughts and intentions of every heart will be weighed and judged and perfect justice finally upheld. The wrath of God is coming. Of course, we don't worry about that day as Christians We don't look to it with trepidation because we know that Jesus himself took the heat for us on the cross. But being saved, we don't ignore sin either. We don't just let it go by, uh, running wild in the garden. Instead, we root it out. We see it for what it is. We strive against it. We put it to death. If I see a bit of bindweed creeping up across my fence, I know what's coming. The petunias are going to be gobbled up. If I see a bit of grass growing in the wrong place, poking through the gravel, I know what's coming, a lawn where it doesn't belong. And so I act decisively. I put them to death. So what exactly, uh, here in Colossians, are we to put to death uh, as spiritual gardeners? There's two lists of things we're to put to death in verse 5 and verse 8. So verse 5, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And then verse 8, rid yourselves of all such things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Don't lie to each other. That first list in verse 5 is about sexual purity, generally, and the second list in verse 8 is about social relationships, 
That first list begins with the provocative phrase, sexual immorality. And then it becomes more generic as it goes on, ending with evil desires and greed. As an interpretive principle, when we're looking at lists, that if a list goes from specific stuff to more generic stuff, then the generic things it refers to are in the same sort of realm as the specific things. So when we read sexual immorality, impurity, lust, followed by evil desires and greed, we know that the evil desires that it's talking about are kind of sexual evil desires, and the greed is a kind of sexual sort of greed, not just any sort of greed being referred to. Now, I've heard the comment sometimes, and probably you've heard it as well, that the church is more interested in preaching against, talking about sexual immorality than about greed. There's two problems with that phrase, that idea, that accusation. The first is a fairly simple semantic one, that actually greed is a very wide generic term, and a sort of greed is actually sexual immorality, as we see in this list here. But often, of course, people actually mean material greed. The church is more interested in preaching against sexual sin than against material greed. And that is a pastoral accusation rather than a semantic problem, that the church is blind to material greed, but is very overconscious of sexual sin. Well, we can say various things to that. Firstly, we can affirm that material greed is indeed a sin, although we probably look elsewhere in the Bible to affirm that. So, for example, the vice list in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or the requirements for pastoral office in Titus chapter 1, which make very clear that greed of a material nature is a sin. It is, of course, however, in many cases, a less obvious sin. It's a state of heart. If somebody owns a very nice pair of glasses, and believe me, these are not a very nice pair of glasses, but if somebody did, or if they own a very nice wallet or a very nice dress, perhaps, were they greedy for that particular item, or was it just something they inherited or something they were given? It's very difficult to tell. But also, and more importantly, it's much less contentious. Most people, whether they're Christian or not, agree that greed is bad. When that phrase, greed greed is good, comes up in Wall Street with the guy Gordon Gecko, he's the villain. He's the person who's meant to be lampooned for his absurd attitude that greed is good. He's not held up as a shiny example of somebody to imitate. Everybody agrees on that. Most preachers would be delighted if they only ever had to preach against material greed. It would be a much easier job. It would be fantastic. But actually, as watchmen and stewards, we're called to preach against the things that everybody knows are weeds and the things that some people say are simply flowers, about which they say, it's actually quite pretty, isn't it? We should leave that in the garden. So we do preach the uncomfortable truths as well as the easy and the comfortable truths. And because it's uncomfortable, it gets noticed more. If a politician in Westminster stands up and speaks in Parliament with great passion and conviction a hundred times against materialism, against material greed, and then once, on one occasion, the same politician speaks with such passion in Parliament against homosexual activity, which of those addresses, those 101 addresses, would get reported in the news headlines? Which of them is contentious? Which one matters to the world? I think we all know. And so which is more needful for us to be 
reminded of as Christians. Human nature doesn't change very much, and what is awkward for us and uncomfortable for us now was awkward and uncomfortable then in the first century in Colossae. So let's be clear what that term sexual immorality means when we read it in Colossians. It means any sexual encounters outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. Put to death what is earthly in your nature. When we read impurity, it means actions that are out of step with that norm. When we read lust, evil desire, and greed, it means desires that are out of step with that norm. We're all human. None of us are entirely free from these sins. We all struggle with them. But let's resolve to strangle sexual immorality in our lives, to impale impurity, to give the lethal injection to lust, to execute evil desire, and to guillotine greed. Because of these the wrath of God is coming. The question of exactly what this looks like in each of our lives is a very personal one, and one that it would take all of us time to go through by ourselves. Maybe it means not looking at particular things or images, not thinking about particular situations or scenarios, not interacting with particular people or tools. We've been talking about safeguarding Sunday, A culture of safety is created, most of all, when we are doing this, when we are putting to death these things in our lives. That makes safeguarding easier. What's the best safeguarding tool we have? Applying God's word to our hearts, not least in this respect. Putting sin to death is hard, but worthwhile in a weed-choked garden. What about that second list, the social situations, verse 8? Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. This is the reverse direction of travel. So verse 5 list was from specific things to generic things. This is from more generic things to more specific things. I'm reminded when I read this passage of a little scene in a what's now quite an old film, but one of my favourites, The Matrix from 1999, when uh, the main character who's being told how to use this uh, online simulation of the world, he gets told by his mentor, you have to let them all go. Fear, doubt, and disbelief. Free your mind, he says, and then you'll be able to do whatever you want to within this unreal world. Well, here's a Christian version. You have to let them all go. Anger, rage, Malice, free your soul from those things. How? By putting them to death. A good question that arises for us when we read the first in that list, which again is problematic, anger, is when, where is the differentiation between wrong anger and right anger? Didn't Jesus himself display anger in the temple when he threw over the money changers' tables? When is anger righteous? Well, I think a good question in that respect would be, is it God being provoked or just our own ego being provoked? 
Is it my honour being questioned? My rights being infringed? My freedoms being curbed? My choices being limited? My pew in the church taken? Or is it God's name that's being taken in vain? God's kingdom opposed? God's glory besmirched? Hopefully, God's glory, God's name, God's kingdom, those are concerns that come to inhabit our own hearts as we grow in Christ. Of course, that's what the Lord's Prayer is all about, those opening requests that your kingdom come, that your will be done. Those concerns would be on our hearts. But it's important, therefore, to check ourselves as Christians, however uh, long in the tooth, to make sure that the anger we feel, the anger we express, is not an anger that's deriving from our own prejudices, our own glory, but an anger arising from the infringing of God's glory and God's rights. It is, of course, the unrighteous anger that's in view here in Colossians that we have to put to death. And there are two very particular expressions of that anger here in the passage, slander and filthy language. As regards filthy language, we have low standards today about what counts as filthy. It could be viewed as a bit of a subjective word. Uh, a rule of thumb that gets passed around, of course, is something like, would you say it in front of your grandmother? Then, of course, grandmother does differ from grandmother in glory. Any slang that refers to body parts or products generally is filthy language and certainly not used approvingly in the Bible. It can be hard, certainly, for us if we're accustomed to, if we're used to using bad language, if we hear it around us from those we work with or those in our families, to get ourselves away from that, to take it out of our hearts and our minds, to get away from the practice of using that sort of filthy language. But as those who have been raised with Christ, that's what we're called to strive to do. And non-Christians, of course, do notice when we strive to do that, when we try to take filthy language out of our vocabulary. And that, of course, creates wonderful evangelistic opportunities to display grace first, not law, to show that Jesus is the most important one to confront. Put to death filthy language. And we can testify, I've put that to death because Jesus raised me up, and he can raise you up too as well, if you believe. So let's atomize anger. Let's rock rage, mow down malice, suffocate slander, and electrocute lies. I couldn't think of an L for that one. Put them all to death. It can be gruesome to put things to death. As I said, I'm very squeamish about it. It can be very hard if we're used to the things that we're trying to put to death, but very worthwhile in a weed-choked garden. Shall we pray? We praise you and thank you, Heavenly Father, for raising us with Christ and seating us with him. May we set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. And so help us and be with us as we put to death what is earthly in us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.